Amen. If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to be a part of what we have. Happening with our Vine Kids time right out these side doors and back door. Likewise, if you have a uh, middle school age kiddo, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, somewhere in that general window, we'd love for them to be a part of our middle school class out there with Mr. Greg. He'll be taking those guys and girls out there. Love for you to be a part of that, um, all that's going on. I don't know if y'all know, but Reagan, she stands right here and she sings and she's really good, but she's getting married on Saturday. And uh, yeah, pretty cool. And David, her fiance, soon-to-be husband, is also here. Uh, so Reagan Taylor, soon-to-be Ta, is uh, in, ra- in route to becoming married on Saturday. So we're really excited about that. We're celebrating with her and the Taylors, and we're really excited about how that dynamic is going to change. But then they're moving to California, so boo David, boo Reagan. Um, so that's just awesome. We're really excited about that. Uh, no, we're excited for you guys. And as Reagan got up a few weeks ago and talked about, they've got a new venture they're a part of where they're really partnering with the church to help think, thinking about how we send and engage and interact with missionaries. And uh, they're taking a vision trip to Thailand in October that anybody's welcome to go on. And so we'll be telling you more about that. Reagan's already talked about it. There's some really great ways to plug in with their life and ministry. And we're really excited about what God has going on for them. So that's really fun. We're excited we get to be a part of it kind of in the ongoing uh, process. So we're excited about that, but uh, it's a really exciting time to be part of this community. We believe that God is doing a lot of really incredible things, and, and we just feel like that it is a really amazing time to say, man, I want to be part of a community that is authentically chasing the Lord together. And so if you are here again for the first time, we want to tell you, it's just such a privilege that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. I tell people this all the time. Back when we planted uh, several years ago, I never believed anybody would want to do this with us. And so it's just pretty exciting that people show up and, and want to be a part of community and life and interaction and life groups and mission and Novo and all those kind of cool and amazing things. And so we're just excited. For 70 weeks, we have been in John. Now, we've taken some breaks here and there, but for 70 weeks, we've gone through every verse, every word, every moment of this gospel, and it's led us to this really unique place. So the entire summer, we have been in the same night. Uh, John devotes so much of his gospel to the last week in the life of Christ, but to specifically these last sort of nights, these moments, these breaths that he has with the disciples, and he's devoted so much time to it. We've spent our whole summer in this evening historically, the evening of the Last Supper, the evening where he washes the disciples' feet, the evening where he teaches them through the, what we call this farewell discourse. We've spent our whole summer there. John's gospel, as you know, is different than all the others. I say this every week. He is committed for you to know that Jesus is God. He's committed the deity of Christ, and he wants you to hear his perspective of Jesus through that lens and not through the historical lens of every chronological little nuance, but instead saying, I want you to know that Jesus is God. And so he spends a ton of his time at this last moments where he's with his disciples and he's been teaching and he's breaking bread and he's sharing life with them, preparing them for what life looks like without him, because Jesus knows what's coming. And we're going to actually see that this morning. He knows what's about to be on him. And we've reached the unique piece of this milestone, this little chapter that we're turning, where Jesus is done teaching the disciples. So since June, we've been looking at Jesus teaching the disciples in this farewell discourse, this long interrupted teaching. Well, he ends all that with this prayer that we've been in the last five or so weeks, where he's prayed over himself and over the disciples and over all of those that would one day follow him, which includes you and it includes me. He's prayed all those. And he brings that that prayer to a close, like we looked at last week, And today, what we're going to see is that this mob, led by Judas the betrayer, is going to show up to arrest 
and sees Jesus. And we're going to look at Jesus' deity in the middle of that incredible scenario, which most of us have heard so many times, that as this crowd comes to arrest Jesus, gathered with his disciples, the night of the Garden of Gethsemane, all of those powerful things, right? We're going to see the deity of Jesus in a moment where he submits willfully to the, the desire and nature and will of the Father, and he intentionally gives his life up for you and for me. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to John chapter 18. We're going to be in the first 14 verses. We're going to, we're going to kind of move in a, a little bit of a quicker pace now because uh, the stories become to come in, they come in narratives. And so we're going to start looking at narrative pieces. And this narrative piece that we're looking at this morning is actually what we call the arrest of Christ. So if you've got your Bible, open up to chapter 18 and uh, we will pray and then we will dive into it together. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that your word is living and active that it is sharper than a double-edged sword, that it penetrates even dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit. You tell us it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, your word is your word breathed. God, you have, you have breathed it to us. It is literally your breath. God, we pray this morning that we would take seriously the opportunities we engage as we open your pages of this thing and you let it speak to our hearts, that you would reveal truth to us. God, we recognize that we are never going to open the pages of Scripture and discover you. You are the revealer of truth. You are the revealer of yourself. And so, Lord, we ask your Holy Spirit to teach our hearts this morning. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord, in in that little whisper in your soul, ask the Lord to just teach you. Whatever it is that he needs to speak into your life, whether it's the main point of what I'm saying or something completely different, just ask the Lord to speak to your heart this morning. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you, in front of you, behind you, even if you don't know their name. We do this every week. We want to be a community that's committed to praying for other people. Everything that unfolds on Sunday morning is not about you or your entertainment. Pray that God would move in somebody else. Maybe it's someone you know really well. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's somebody you've never seen before. The Lord knows their name. Pray for them. Pray that God would move in their life this morning. Lord, we ask you humbly to teach us, to instruct our hearts. We might hear your voice this morning, and we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So this is John chapter 18, and this is the account of Jesus being arrested. So John chapter 18, verse 1, when he had finished praying, right, he had just wrapped up this, this incredible prayer, all of chapter 17. Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus is often met there with his disciples. So Judas came up to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it that you are looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words that he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. 
Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was a father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. So this is the account, right, the story of Jesus' arrest. And it's one that should be relatively familiar, right? All four Gospels record these series of events. They highlight different things, but they all record these series of events. Jesus has finished praying with the, praying his prayer over the disciples and the future disciples and even over himself. And as he's done, they leave the place where they are and they cross the Kidron Valley. Now, I'm going to take a, uh, a 3D map of the whole area. I'm going to turn it on its side here so you can see it. This sort of magical map. And, and there's the temple in Jerusalem that was sort of where all religious life and practice took place, and that's right here, okay? We'll just call that to the north for the sake of argument. Now, the upper room, <coughs> excuse me, was to the south over here, but still within the city limits, all right? So you got the temple, you got the upper room. That's where uh, Jesus went that very night. He spent with his disciples, broke bread. They're up here in this upper room. Well, if you go down out of the city to the east, there's a big valley, Right? And during the rainy season, it fills with water, but during the non-rainy season, it's just dry. You come out of that valley on the other side, and outside the city walls was the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, of course, we're familiar with because it's in a ton of Jesus stories. They spent a lot of time there. Well, on the Mount of Olives, you can actually look into the city. You can see this temple. You can see all these places. But at the base of the Mount of Olives was the Garden of Gethsemane. They're all not very far from each other. So you've got the temple, you've got the upper room, and you've got an easy walk through this little valley to the base of the Mount of Olives, which is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now we know from our text in John, the reason I say all that is because I want you to understand we're talking about some movement, but not a ton of movement. All these places were were nearby. And as Jesus leaves the upper room with his disciples, and he prays and he's teaching and he's doing all of the things that happened in 14, 15, 16, and 17, they're kind of walking towards the valley. And it says that as he wrapped up his prayers, he stopped and they finished praying, he crossed the valley and they went to this place, right? The place of the Mount of Olives. Now we know this was the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane because all the other gospels actually record it by name. But John just simply says they left there and they went on to the other side by the olive grove, right? So they're down there, the base of Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, place that Jesus had been with his disciples numerous times. Now Judas right, who we know has betrayed him, he left that very night. You remember when they were breaking bread? This went back in June for us. Uh, Jesus looks at him, and he basically says to everybody, this is the one that's going to betray me, and he tells Judas to go and do what he's going to do, and Judas gets up and leaves and goes into the night. Well, Judas leaves the upper room, and he gathers this group of people, excuse me, gathers this group of people to come and basically seize and arrest Jesus. So Judas, who had betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had spent so much time with his disciples. They, Jesus, Judas knew where he would be. And he came there really with two groups of people. And this is pretty fascinating. So Judas shows up with a detachment of soldiers, and he shows up with a bunch of official Jewish people and important folks. So you got to remember that Ju- uh, Jerusalem is, and Israel, all of Israel is actually under Roman rule. So they are, are, uh, have the ability to self-govern from a religious or sort of social standpoint. <coughs> Excuse me, but they have no um, sort of governmental kind of oversight of their own life. They can't put together any kind of military or anything like that. But the Jewish people, the leaders, had become so incensed with Jesus that somehow they were able to get the Roman soldiers involved in this detachment uh, kind of arrest party. 
So Judas leads a detachment, or what is better, kind of Greek word there is cohort, this, this relatively large but not massive, maybe 30 to 40, uh, maybe even 50, Roman soldiers, like fully dressed, <coughs> excuse me, Roman soldiers with all of their Roman soldiering wear, right? Their shields and their hats and their all their things, right? The helmets, the, the swords, the whole bit. And he gets an attachment of, a, of officials from the Jewish sort of religious leading parties with their servants and most likely the temple police. So this is a quite the crowd that Judas is leading, right? It's this joint task force, if you will, between the Roman army, the religious leaders, the, the temple police, and they're all coming to seize Jesus. Well, Judas is leading this rebellion. He's leading this gathering, this, this seizing party. And he goes to the place where he knows, <coughs> of course, that Jesus will be. Excuse me. They're carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Verse 4 says, knowing all that was going to happen to him, right? Jesus knows all that was going to happen and unfold. He goes out to meet this arresting party. He says, who is it that you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And at the moment that he says that, it says that they all drew back and fell to the ground. They retreated, right? Several steps or whatever. And they fell to the ground. The word there for fall means they laid down uh, prostrate to the ground. So they didn't trip and like back up. They literally fell down as if under conviction, right? That's what that word means. So this entire group of people, soldiers and religious leaders and temple police laying face down, belly down, prostrate on the ground. And Jesus says to them again, who is it that you're looking for? Or who is it that you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I told you, it's I am he. And then he says, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. And John reminds us that Jesus had already told them that he was going to lose no one that the Father had given him. So John says he said that to make sure that prophecy was fulfilled. But then something crazy happens, right? Things take a crazy turn. Simon Peter reaches for his sword, which really is like a tiny dagger. So he pulls out this tiny dagger and he swings sort of wildly and kind of cuts off the right ear of Malchus, the high priest. Now, this is such a crazy event <coughs> that all four Gospels record it, but John tells on Peter. None of the other Gospels give a name. There's like, one of the disciples, but John's like, it was Peter, man. He did it, in case anyone's pointing the finger. Cut the ear clean off, that fool, right? Just right off. And, and he cuts it off. And, and Luke is the only one, actually, that tells us that Jesus then took the ear or miraculously healed him, right? <coughs> they did this incredible healing, but John doesn't record that. John just records it was Peter slicing off the ear of Malchus. And Jesus stops and goes, wait, stop. He goes, am I leading uh, this sort of rebellion? Like, I, I, we're not, put away your sword. Like, am I not to drink the cup that the Father's given me? Now, even though John doesn't record the events of the Garden of Gethsemane, we'll get into this in a minute, they're echoed in these words. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? So he says, Peter, he rebukes him, put that away. And it says, then the soldiers, who I guess now have gotten up and are all kind of standing around going, well, that was crazy. No one attacked Jesus like they didn't do anything. They just watched him lop the ear off this guy and then put it back. It's pretty awesome. And then they bind him <coughs> and they lead him away to Annas' house, who's the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest, where Jesus will ultimately stand trial in the middle of the night and be held till morning. You may remember how those events unfold. <coughs> and this is basically the account of Jesus' arrest. It's the account of how Jesus is seized. Now, it's really interesting, right, because I've been talking about this quite a bit over the, over the months that we've been doing John. Jesus is, is never really 
captured. He's in complete control of the situation at all times. We've seen this multiple times where they've tried to see Jesus and he would like vanish from their grasp. They couldn't seize him. They couldn't grasp him. <clears throat> and he would tell them because it wasn't quite yet his time. <clears throat> Excuse me, I still got this cough. It wasn't quite yet his time. But yet here we see Jesus actually being arrested. And at first glance, we've got this crowd of 40 or 50 or so people that are armed with lanterns, lanterns and torches and weapons and the Jewish officials and the temple police and their servants and all these people. It looks as if Jesus and the disciples are overrun. But make no mistake, right? The first thing that we're going to see in this text is that Jesus is in complete and total control. Humanity does not seize him. And it's really evident for a couple of reasons. It's evident first because he goes to the garden in the first place, right? So Jesus knows that Judas is out to get him. He's actually told him he can go. Go ahead, Judas, do what you came for. Judas leaves. And so you'd think <coughs> that if Jesus didn't want to be arrested, he would go anywhere except the one place that everyone knows he would, he would go, right? So the only place Judas basically knows that Jesus is going to show up is the place that he always goes with his disciples, and so Jesus willfully and intentionally walks out of the upper room, down throughout the city gates, <clears throat> and directly into the Grove of Olives where he always sat with his disciples. The exact place where he knew that Judas would come and find him. So Jesus is obviously going out of his way to get arrested. If he didn't want to be arrested, he would just leave the upper room and walk the other direction, because where's Judas going to know? We're going to go and hide, but he doesn't. He walks down knowing full well that Judas is coming and that this is the place that he's going to be found. So Jesus goes out of his way to sort of be found, be arrested. So we see that. We also see that Jesus, Jesus handles the situation as almost as if this is his doing. So the crowd comes, <coughs> torches and lanterns and all of these things. Jesus goes out to them. It says, knowing full well all that was going to happen to him, Jesus goes out to them and he says, who is it that you want? So Jesus is not waiting for them, sitting back on his heels, waiting for them to come and seize him. He's proactive in his movement to go and greet this armed party. Who do you want? <coughs> well, we want Jesus of Nazareth. Well, I'm he. Takes control of that sort of situation. He also allows no resistance, right? You know what Matthew records? Matthew records that when Peter, who Matthew doesn't throw under the bus, right? When, Pe when Peter slices off the ear, Jesus stops him and he says, am I leading a rebellion? Do you not think at once I could call on my father and he would bring 12 legions of angels to defend me? But then how would scripture be fulfilled that say it must, says it must happen this way? So Jesus could have easily, right, said, charge! And all the disciples just sort of take everybody on, and they're all led by Peter with his sword, and because he's Jesus, everybody's gone. And he could have easily done that, or he called, called upon the Father, and legions of angels come and rescue, <clears throat> fly them out to wherever. But Jesus says, no, this is how this has to go. It's God's will. So we see that this is Jesus in control. And the reason that's important is because humanity does not arrest and kill God doesn't happen. God willfully and intentionally surrenders his life for humanity. Jesus was not murdered. <coughs> Being murdered implies there's a victim. Jesus willfully gave himself for humanity. Humanity doesn't conquer God. God sacrificially, intentionally, and willfully gives himself to humanity. 
Doesn't sound much different, but I'm telling you theologically, it's incredibly important. We never have the power to overrun God. We do not get a mob enough together and overthrow the will of God. We do not conquer God with our human intentions. God is unconquerable. He is mighty and he is holy. He is God. And Jesus, being fully God, as, Jesus is, as John is showing us, willfully and intentionally gives his life over to humanity. And we're going to see more about that in a minute. But we know that Jesus is in total and absolute control. John makes that incredibly clear. The other thing that John makes clear is that Jesus is not, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus is not a mere man. Now we know that because we've walked from John 1, where we see the very intention of, Jesus, of God bringing the word made flesh through all the miracles and all the pieces. But John wants it to be really clear that this Jesus is not just some mere man. And we know that a couple of ways. We know it through the way that he speaks through his words. So listen to what Jesus says. He goes out and he greets this mob of wielding, weapon-wielding soldiers, lanterns and torches, and he recomes out to them and he says, who is it that you want? And those of you that are paying attention or have been with our study of John will pick up on this right away. And they said, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I am he. John actually records it three times. I am he, he says it again, I am he, and then he says it again. But Jesus says it twice to this crowd. I am he. I told you that I am he. <clears throat> now these words are really important, right? If you remember way back to chapter 9, Jesus does the same thing. That construction of that phrase, I am, is really actually two Greek words that both mean I am, okay? You put them together, and what Jesus is actually saying is I am, I am. He's making a very intentional claim. We talked about this back in chapter 9. If you remember in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is having this incredible meeting with God, and God is speaking to him in the burning bush. And he's basically telling Moses, <clears throat> he's saying, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell Pharaoh that he should let my people go. And Moses is like, I don't really think that's a great idea. And God says, no, it's a really great idea because it's my idea. And Moses is like, listen, I hear you, but they're not going to listen to me. Pharaoh's not going to hear me. And he's speaking to God in this holy ground, sandalous feet, talking to this burning bush. <clears throat> Moses finally comes around. And he says, okay, let's say I go. And I go to the Israelites and I say, hey, Israelites, the God of your fathers has sent me to deliver you. And the Israelites look at me, and they say, what is his name? What is God's name? You remember this? And so Moses says to the burning bush, he says, God, what do I tell them when they ask your name? And you remember what God says out of the burning bush? He looks at Moses. I guess he looks at fire. He says to Moses, I am the I am. And that's where we get, of course, God's name is the great I am. The name, the unspeakable name of Yahweh is encapsulated in God saying, I am the I am. So here's Jesus, knowing full well what he's doing, making no mistakes because he's Jesus. And they say, who is it that you want? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus actually says, I am, I am. Jesus is declaring his deity, and he does it twice. There's another phrase for saying, oh, I'm right here. Jesus could have said that. But instead he says, I am, I am. And they say, and Jesus says to him again, who is it you're looking for? And they say, we're looking for Jesus. And now he says, I already told you that I am, I am. 
So Jesus is claiming in this sort of powerful way that he is in fact God. You remember in chapter 9, those of you who were with us, this infuriated the Jewish leaders. They started tearing their clothes. They freaked out and grabbed rocks and tried to kill him. And Jesus ninjaed his way out of their grasp. But here, Jesus just says it. And they're already all laying on the ground. I am, I am. So we see his deity in his words. We also see it in this, this crazy action that happens. So Jesus says, I am, I am, speaks those powerful words. The entire group of Roman soldiers, along with temple police and Jewish officials and servants, they draw back and they fall to the ground. So here's this scene, right? The disciples with a mountain behind them at the base of this mountain, the Mount of Olives behind them, this huge crowd of torch-bearing, weapon-wielding soldiers in front of them. And Jesus says, I am, I am, and they fall to the ground. And there's an incredible picture here if you really think about it, right? Because the disciples, when they're sitting there and they're looking at this going, well, this, this is not going real well. Because they've got the mountain behind them, they can't really escape. They've got the army, the Roman army, along with the temple police, pressing in on them. And Jesus is standing there, and it looks like this sort of crazy, hopeless situation. If you remember back to the book of Exodus, you remember that when when Moses was leading God's people out, they went all the way through the land, and they came to the Red Sea. And the Pharaoh's army was pressing in on them. And they're standing on the edge of the Red Sea, some two million plus people on the edge of the Red Sea, and Pharaoh's army with all the chariots and all their horses coming in full speed behind them. They're hemmed in by the sea, and they're hemmed in by Pharaoh's army. And Moses, in that incredible moment, right, takes that staff, and he trusts in God's faithfulness, and he plants that thing, and the sea opens, and they cross on dry land. Jesus, in this moment, when he declares, I am, I am, the army, this 40, 50, whatever it was, people fall to the ground, And at that moment, Jesus and the disciples could have walked across this group of people, if you will, on dry land. God had essentially parted the way. He had laid them down. And Jesus and the disciples could have walked right through them. Excuse me. Pardon me. Don't mind this. And they just walked clean out and escaped. But there was no escape, right? Because the, the, the road to salvation was going to lead through that mob that was going to take Jesus to Calgary, to Golgotha. There was no escape, but by demonstration that Jesus was in fact God, just so he could show those around him, the disciples, that he was not being overrun by humanity. He says, I am, I am. They fall to the ground, but instead he stays. He stays. And this incredible demonstration of God's sort of mightiness, the army laying on the ground, soldiers laying on the ground, Officials laying on the ground, the disciples standing kind of wide-mouthed, looking at like, let's go. Jesus is like, no, this is where we stay. So he asks them again while we're on the ground, who is it that you're looking for? Or who is it that you want? Well, Jesus of Nazareth, I am, I am. I told you that. So the disciples stay. Jesus kind of implores that they be let go. And of course, Matthew and, and Luke record that they just all ran. They just bolted. They took off for the hills. John doesn't actually tell us that they took off, but Matthew wants to make sure that we know that they all just bailed. And they run in different directions, and they abandon Jesus, and he's left there standing alone, and the guards get up, and they bind him. It says that they, they put his hands essentially behind him. They chain him, 
and they walk him back across the Kidron Valley over to the father-in-law of the high priest. Long story why there, but not all that important. And then ultimately to Caiaphas' house where he stands this sham of a trial and he's held till morning where he's going to be sent to Herod and Pilate and you know the rest of the story. We'll be getting into it over the next few weeks. But the last thing that I really see in there that's really powerful is of course one that we is, is looking right at us and it's this incredibly beautiful picture of Jesus' obedience. I'm really struck by one phrase in here in this gospel story that gets me more than any of the others. It's the one where John says, <clears throat> as he's standing there and he sees Judas coming with all the crowd, he says it in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it that you want? So that phrase is really powerful. And I think John, of course, does it intentionally. Jesus is God. We know he's the I am, the I am. And he knows all that is going to happen to him. And John is not implying that Jesus knows that they're going to arrest him. John is implying that Jesus knows all that is going to happen. The arrest, the trial, the beating, the robes, the crown of thorns, the humiliation, the spit, the anguish, the sin of the world, the desperation, right? The abandonment of the Father, the turning away from the sin of the world, the death, the agony, the suffocation. Jesus knows all of that. And yet, In all of his humanity, he could have walked across that sea of soldiers, if you will. He could have, but he doesn't. And John records this really great statement after he rebukes Peter. He says, Peter, put away your sword. And then he just simply says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, John doesn't specifically record the series of the, uh, the, the, what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. The other Gospels do. The Garden of Gethsemane is Jesus takes them out to the Mount of Olives, and then he takes... Peter, James, and John, and he goes over to this place, and he asks him to pray for him, and then Jesus goes, and he prays by himself to the Father, and he cries out to the Father, and they record that his, his uh, sweat was like drops of blood, and he was in so much anguish that he prayed, and he prayed, he said, Father, if there is a way, please take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. That's the picture of the Garden of Gethsemane. That's the moment that Jesus is arrested. Matthew records that as Jesus stood up from that prayer, the crowd came, the mob came. John leaves that prayer out, but he has the words embedded in there. And so Peter strikes the ear, and Jesus says, put away your sword. Shall I not drink the cup? In other words, shall I not be faithful to what God has placed in front of me? Like Jesus' obedience, knowing full well where that road leads him, is overwhelming to me. Now, Paul says something really powerful in the book of Philippians chapter 3. We've studied that book as well. But he's talking about what his life, what he longs for his life in Christ to look like. In 3.10, he says that I want to know Christ. I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I want to know Christ, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, sharing in his death, becoming like him in his death death as so somehow to attain the resurrection of the dead what that tells me is that paul's longing was to become like jesus as jesus died and how does jesus die well he dies in ultimate this beautiful picture of obedience the human side of him longing for another way out longing for another way than the brutal 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 humiliating death that was standing before him the abandonment the hurt the pain the anguish all of that 
but being completely obedient to Christ at any moment and with every breath. And that Jesus was in complete and absolute control from the moment he was arrested, actually all his life, but from the moment he was arrested until his last breath was a moment of control and obedient surrender to the Father. God, I choose you. Even in the wake of all that I know is coming, even in the wake of the difficulties and the struggles, I choose you. Jesus' call was deep and true obedience. And I read those things, and I get really convicted. Because my obedient life that follows Christ is really only contingent on what I think I can handle. If I think I can handle what's unfolding, then yes, Lord, I will, I will follow you. But if what seemingly is in front of me is insurmountable, then I beg for a way out. I plead for a way out. And if it doesn't come, I try and make my own. Because my obedience goes as far as I'm comfortable. But what if we, like Paul, echoed this thing that said, God, I don't really care where this leads me, but I want to be so obedient to you that through difficulty or despair or hurt or anguish or even death that I would say yes to you. This is the longing of Paul's heart. It's echoed perfectly in Jesus' life. And it should be our desire as followers of Christ. Obedience. Why? Because I trust that God is who he says he is. So what we see in this picture of Jesus' arrest is this. Jesus was not overrun by humanity. Jesus is in complete and total control of every moment. God surrenders his life voluntarily and willfully for all of humanity. He did that for you because he loves you. No matter what you've done or where you've been, he is in love with you and wants to rescue and redeem you. He is not a mere man. Jesus was not some great moral teacher by which we can look through these pages and say, hey, I'll take those cool teachings, but I'm going to leave it all there. It's either Jesus was God or he was crazy. And John's saying he's not a mere man. I mean, he declares himself that he is the great I am, and, and at his words, people fall to the ground. I mean, Peter lops off the ear of the guy, and Jesus puts it back. This is not some moral teacher whose words we should hang on because he says things that are culturally upstream. This is the very picture of God incarnate. He is God, and it changes everything. And in all that, facing all that, he lived a perfect, sinless life in complete and total, beautiful obedience to the Father. And he set a standard by which every one of us as a follower of Christ should long for that God, I want my heart to beat after the obedience of Christ. That facing life's hardships, difficulties, fears, and I, I venture to say I will never even remotely come close to facing anything that Jesus faced. But in the, in the midst of my hardships, my struggles, my fears, my failures, my anxieties, in the middle of all that, to be at a place where I say, God, not what I desire for me, but your will that I would walk in that wherever it leads me and wherever it takes me, that you, you would be glorified. Because remember, Jesus' entire goal for his entire life was glory to the Father. My entire goal for my entire life is typically the glory of myself. Every day is spent trying to beat that down, that we could one day be at a place, you and I, where we said, God, for your glory and not mine. This is what's captured in this picture. 
and it's rooted in obedience. If you're living in a place of disobedience, if you're living in a place of restlessness, spiritual unrest, I can promise you there's a part of your life that is warring against what God has for you. Maybe like Jesus, we, we fall down and we just say, Father, not what I want, but what you want. Make it clear that I would trust you and I would walk with you, for you are God. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity just to gather this morning to open a story that is relatively familiar and see your footprint all over it. God, to look at what Jesus has done for us and and see that just simply as narrative is missing this entire story. To see it as a arrest account misses the deity of Jesus, Lord. To see what he was facing and, and shrug it off as part of this Easter narrative is a, it's a miss. God, what you demonstrated on that night was that you, being fully God, fully God, surrendered yourself to the angry hands of the creation that you made. The very men and women that you breathed life into, that you say in the Psalms that you knit together in their mother's womb, that creation, you surrendered yourself to them. That, Lord, you gave yourself willingly up so that I that we as followers of Christ might forever know you, that we might be able to put our faith and hope and trust in you because you conquered death. Lord, there are a lot of things that we're facing. There's a lot of things that we have trust issues with. There's a lot of places in our life where we have questions. And God, what I pray is not that you would give us answers to our questions, but you give us faith to trust you, to say, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Shall we not follow your plan and your will. Help us surrender, Lord, daily to you, that we would find great, great joy in this life, a life that puts one foot after the other, following Jesus, becoming like him in his death. Lord, that we might know you. As we close our time and worship this morning, Lord, I pray that you would move our hearts, that you would direct us to a place that follows and knows you. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Let's stand together and close in worship this morning.